You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 13. AI and machine learning are going to become universally applied to any data-driven project. Therefore, advertising that something uses machine learning is going to become increasingly more meaningless the same way as saying that a SaaS product uses the internet. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. Welcome back to The Local Maximum. Great to have you. Great to have everyone. Now, before I jump right into it, thank you so much for sharing The Local Maximum with your friends and your relatives and your colleagues who are interested. I'm starting to share this at various tech meetups that I go to in New York City. Who knows? Maybe you who are listening to me uh, today for the first time are someone who I met at a, uh, a tech meetup. And so it does seem to be having an effect. Uh, some people are coming on and listening for the first time. So thank you very, very much. As I've said before, I don't want this podcast to just be a one-way street. You can and should email the show with your questions, comments, and requests at localmaxradio at gmail.com. By the way, our guest today, Maria Yao, is someone who also puts out a lot of great learning materials online, and she also sees the value in a two-way dialogue. You'll see this from her uh, management of an applied AI Facebook group and various other platforms that I'll we'll talk about and I'll link to at the end. So uh, all this is worth doing. The, the people who know, know what they're doing. All right. Now, let me tell you a little bit about today's interview in relation to what we've done in the past. We've definitely done a lot of speculation on future technology. We've done some analysis on current trends, and we've spoken to some of my favorite engineers. But most of the conversations have been very specific to a single problem and from a single company's perspective. So if we're going to understand the impact that AI and machine learning are going to have in our society, then we need to step back and see how it's affecting many businesses across many industries. And also, I think it's important to get a more practical look at applying machine learning because I know a lot of people in this audience are wondering how it's going to affect their lives, not just as a consumer, not just in terms of you know the, the, their smartphone or whatever, but also in their workplaces in whatever role they have, you know, not just engineering, not just product, it also affects you, you know, if you're a business leader or if you're in sales or if you're in, in marketing. So Maria is one of those few who have both, who both dives into machine learning and AI on a deep technical level, but also has a very broad view of what's going on uh, across different industries. And so that's why Along with Marlene Gia and Adeline Zhao, she authored a new book uh, coming out in a few weeks called Applied Artificial Intelligence. I know after uh, talking to uh, Maria today that it'll be well worth picking up. And we're going to be speaking in that about a number of real-world topics today. Uh, we're going to be talking about, you know, what are some of the misconceptions around AI? If I have an AI product, how can I talk about it to business leaders? How do I sell it? externally and how does it become a business where are the various industries on this and what are some of the prerequisites for uh for building ai and machine learning products slash businesses and i'm talking about data collection organizational issues all of that so today's show in addition to just being fascinating 
uh, we're going to get some real marketable knowledge that'll help us all in the workplace. So I think that's great. Now, a little bit more about Maria Yao. Maria is the Chief Technology and Product Officer at MetaMaven, a company that builds machine learning solutions to drive business growth. As an AI designer, Maria helps executives gain mastery over technical concepts and effectively leverage machine learning intelligence to transform businesses and society. She's also passionate about promoting diversity and inclusion in STEM education and careers. Maria speaks internationally at conferences like CES and South by Southwest, writes for Forbes about the interplay of human and machine intelligence, and, an, and is editor-in-chief of TopBots, the largest publication and community for enterprise AI professionals. Maria, welcome to the show. Hi, Max. Thank you so much for inviting me to the local maximum. <laughs> yeah, it's great, isn't it? You've just launched this new book, uh, Applied Artificial Intelligence. It's aimed at more of a general business audience. Absolutely. So there are so many books out there that are either aimed at engineers and researchers, so they're very technically detailed. Um, and there's also a bunch of more fluffy content that's more about future of work or philosophy of AI. And those are very important. We talk a lot about that people on the to program. Think about that. Yeah. It's very important to think about, but we're really targeting a director to C-suite level executive at a business who is really asking herself, what is AI? What does it mean for my enterprise? What can I do today to make sure that I'm capitalizing on these modern AI technologies rather than falling behind my competitors? Right, right. And I also tell engineers it's important to read this stuff, particularly new engineers, try to figure out what the business leaders are thinking because then you'll make sure that you're working on the right things and you'll get to kind of anticipate where the company is going and you'll get to know how to like make the case for building what you think should be built. That's very smart advice. We definitely have observed that sometimes engineers and data scientists get caught up in the weeds. Oh, um, I do that all the time. <laughs> I spend like three months doing something and it's like I improved it a tiny bit. And yeah, and sometimes it makes it really hard to communicate um, why something is very important to a business leader or really to persuade them that your particular technical initiative is the right one to invest in. When you talk to people about AI, these aren't necessarily you know, people who have taken machine learning in school. They're people who kind of have heard of it. They feel like they should do it. And oftentimes you talk to, um, you talk to people and they have some misconceptions about what machine learning is, about what AI is, and you know, what it means for their business. So what's, what's the biggest misconception that you find uh, people have about AI when you talk to them? There are so many misconceptions. I think that we can pretty much assume that our business audience does not have the mathematical background or the technical background. Um, so that does limit us in terms of the way we're able to explain certain techniques. But I think one of the biggest misconceptions about AI is they confuse AI with AGI, so AI okay. with artificial general intelligence. So there's a lot of assumptions, especially with the way the media is portraying some of these research breakthroughs. There is a lot of misconception that AI is already at human level intelligence or that AI is already beating humans or thinking or able to reason about the world the same way that humans are, which is not true. As you and I know, machines reason about the world very, very differently, which gives them both advantages and disadvantages when it comes to decision making and problem solving. So I tried to, yeah, I tried to explain, uh, actually, this was last week at, at, at Yale, you know, what the next 10, 20 years of AI look like. I think you're right, the general AI is coming a little more down the line, but I sort of feel like our narrow AI is 
you know, what you're talking about is getting really, really good. Like it's, you know, I talk about making narrow AI a little less narrow. Would you say that's, you know, accurate or how do you think about it in terms of what can narrow AI do? Like I talk about how, well, it's beaten people at Jeopardy, it's beaten people at Go. There are certain problems where I would call them problems of perfect information and very clear labels. So if there's a picture of a cat, yeah. you see the picture of the cat, you can agree that the picture is that of a cat. There's no ambiguity there. Right, so it's uh, a supervised learning. Supervised learning. Supervised learning problems are the ones that have had the most applications for business functions. Um, you haven't quite seen as much yet. Reinforcement learning and unsupervised learning have the same effect, but that is changing. But I want to disambiguate between something that's very complex, like the game of Go, and something that's even more complex, which is making business decisions at global corporations. Because yeah. in the game of Go, you have perfect information. Yeah. So even though you have this explosive combinatorial explosion when it comes to Go, you still know everything. Both parties are very aware of what's happening in the game of Go. In a lot of business scenarios, you don't have perfect information. You may never even have perfect information. You may take results yet never realize what the alternative of those results could have been. And these are very, very, very difficult to model. So real world scenarios where you can model them in a video game, um, where they're simple enough where you can model them in a video simulation, a game simulation, those are potentially ones that can be tackled with current approaches to narrow AI. But Problems that are fundamentally poorly defined, where you don't even know how to rank outcomes. <laughs> and once you go down one path, you have no ability to A-B test or parallel test alternative options. Those are ones that are just inherently difficult for any intelligence, whether that is a human intelligence or a current narrow AI system. But humans do have this increased adaptability where we do do better with sparse data. We do do better with ambiguity. And we do have this creative element where we can imagine worlds that don't exist yet and bring them into fruition. So I don't know how to bring narrow AI to that level of human intelligence. If I did, I'd probably be a billionaire by now. Um, but th there are definitely very, very fundamental intelligence challenges that narrow AI is not capable of doing right now. And one of them I'd mentioned before is not being able to confidently identify patterns when given only sparse data. So that's something that narrow AI is it does struggle with and we yeah. are seeing we are seeing approaches that try to overcome some of these sort of data hog issues of deep learning like probabilistic programming um, and other systems that maybe combine symbolic you know, systems it, and expert it, systems it's with interesting deep just learning. to jump in the, one of the titles in, in in one of my podcast episodes was titled the power of suggestion and it was the idea that well humans are very suggestible which means that you know we uh, we look at something that happened recently and we we generalize to it and we could be manipulated through that sometimes but it actually gives us a big advantage because you know uh, over machines in other ways because you know we can actually kind of connect the dots a lot easier in terms of in the example i was using my you know my frequent guest aaron who was giving me some um, some cryptographic 
exercises and like I realized he was using a lot of literary uh, references so it was like okay I think the next one is a good chance it'll be a literary reference movie I'll check and I was right and it, like a machine would never think to do that it would just be going through its language model and so on and so forth it's still a mystery I think how humans are able to develop pattern recognition and conceptual modeling so quickly. I think if we understood how that was happening, we would have AI already that emulates that. But because we don't fully understand how we're able to extrapolate certain conclusions from such sparse data, we can't easily emulate it. Yeah, I agree with you that these business decisions are really the hardest. And I think there's a lot, there's misconception, you know, if you watch, you know, fictional TV shows or whatever, just like kind of in popular consciousness, uh, well, business is just numbers, you know, how hard could it be just adding up? But w- some of these problems uh, in the real world are nothing like uh, the games that we come up with um, to to test our AI systems or just, you know, games like Go or, or Jeopardy. They're like, you know, not only are they, do they involve like every problem in the world, but it's also could be adversarial where you have whatever system you set up, you have people trying to manipulate the system and, you know, then it makes your life even more difficult. So um, to, to come up with this specific question, are there any like specific business problems that you've come across recently that you could talk about um, that kind of illustrate this well? You mean business problems that can't that are, that are, be solved with AI or business problems that can be solved with AI? Oh, uh, that's a good question. Well, actually, I kind of want both. Let's start with one that can be solved uh, with AI, but it's like a problem that is, I assume, very difficult to solve without AI. So, okay, so there's different categories of business problems that can be solved with AI. One would be, the lowest level would be what your Excel analyst is already doing, but better, right? Right. So in that case, you're taking columnar data, tabular data that has a structure, has an organization, and your Excel analyst is doing something like, I don't know, forecasting your sales, but using some naive statistical method rather than a more advanced machine learning approach to do the same thing. So that would be, I'd say, one class where machine learning is mostly replacing statistics and doing so with larger volumes of data that exceed the number of possible rows you can manipulate in Excel. That would be level one. Okay. Um, You have more advanced levels, which would be AI only enabled, right? So computer vision applications would be one of these. As you know, computer vision sucked for a really long time, pretty much until the advent of deep learning. Um, Only when deep learning was applied to computer vision, did we actually get something resembling human level performance in specific use cases? So that would be an example of something that was actually not possible before that is now possible. So where does that matter? It matters, for example, if you are a brand trying to understand where your product is showing up in people's user-generated photos, Mm. understanding um, where it's showing up, That's who is posting about it. Um, it's also if you do any kind of media advertising, right? So for example, if you're Gatorade and you sponsor a sports game, it used to be that you would hire an analyst who would watch that sports game and manually tag how often the logo showed up during the sports game because that would be a measure of your earned media. Now you do that automatically. It's done in less than an hour. So... Um, this so is an example. Yeah. If, if somebody, if if there's a sports game going on, and you know they cut to, let's say it's a football game, and they cut to the, I don't know too much about football, the sideline where all the players are. <laughs> I don't know what that's called. Uh, but uh, and one guy just reaches over for his Gatorade. He happens to have the label on that. That will get tagged. 
Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, uh, you can even do automatic highlighting, automatic editing, right? So you're actually seeing a lot of AI principles being applied to video editing and the film industry where it's very painful to make a highlight reel. Yeah. But you could train an AI to identify when action of a desirable type has occurred in a video and automatically curate that. Same thing with photos. Your Google Photos already does this, which it looks at location, it looks at content, and it automatically groups photos that it thinks are either aesthetically, thematically, or by event related to each other. Yeah, and in addition to you know, photos and videos, I feel like just general marketing data, which is the type, which, you know, is something that I've been going over a lot recently and is something very common in the industry, um, is very difficult. You know, you look at all these actions that users are taking, how is this affecting, how is one metric affecting another? So in other words, how does a user seeing uh, a reference to my product on this website, how does that affect them later buying it? That's a very difficult link to make. Attribution is actually still the number one problem right now, not just within marketing, but even when you connect marketing to sales to customer service, it's still the number one complaint that I hear marketers talk about. Mm. In that particular case, though, I think that it's more a problem that either the data doesn't exist or the people who own the data are not colluding on that data. So, for example, Apple will know that you clicked on an ad within their mobile unit, um, you may not necessarily know um, at, like whether that user who came came from clicking on that ad in that mobile app. It depends really on how much Apple wants to tell you. Um, or let's say I read uh, about your product in a blog post on my mobile phone. I mentally remember it. And later right. on when I'm at my work computer, I go and I type in that URL. There's the, that data there. It exists, but your Android isn't going to share that data with your MacBook at the office. So in many of these cases, it's not necessarily that it couldn't be done. It's that the organizations that own these siloed pieces of data either don't have an incentive or are not technically competent enough to centralize this data. There is also just a, an, like in many cases, it is very much an incentive issue. So for example, there are certain marketing firms that will get special access to data from Facebook, but Facebook for the most part do, wants to limit what you as an advertiser or marketer gets from their platform because that is their proprietary data and what drives the value of advertising on their platform. So in some of these cases, I wonder if it, if the incentives in the market, the economic incentives will make it difficult to solve this problem in the long run. Yeah, I feel like all data collection efforts are kind of incomplete and you sort of have to, you know, work around what you're missing or figure out what you're missing. But I, but and, and I know you mentioned this on, on some of the articles that you've written, but that, you know, data collection is kind of an important prerequisite to doing machine learning. How do you, have you found situations where, you know, People want to do machine learning, they want to do AI, but they just don't have the data collection yet. And what do you, like, how do you, how do you think about that? Like, when are you ready? Absolutely. So there are a lot of cases where the data is going to be relatively sparse and, or you just have a very low signal. Yeah. So for example, in sales, in sales, you're going to go through multiple touch points. And at some point you want to mark your lead as either one or lost. What's difficult there is the volume at your own company of this data may not be sufficient to train a model on. 
in those cases, so it's just like I have a hundred salespeople. You have They've each reached out to fifty people, so I have five thousand data points. You might be able to find some patterns. 5, you may be able to find points, some but... patterns, but it may not be enough to train any kind of robust model. Right, and and that's just the nature of that behavior. That behavior does not generate that much data inherently. There's also some difficulty there with the labeling. So, for example, when is a deal lost? So, with some of these enterprise sales cycles, they could be years long, and sometimes they reactivate oh, yeah. without you knowing. So, in those cases, you even have a label ambiguity problem is like you label a particular sequence of sales touch points as lost. Well, that's not ground truth. That's just your opinion as to whether or not it's lost. Right. So that can be difficult as well. From That's just for that particular use case. In those particular cases where in a particular activity inherently does not generate enough data, sometimes the only option is to go find a vendor, a third party vendor, like a sales force who is going to have hundreds of thousands of customers information and aggregate that information in a way to train more robust sales models. The other thing too is if you're only relying on your own data, it may be possible that you are stuck at a local maximum, that there are in fact other patterns that other companies are doing that would improve your sales methodology, but you're not even aware of it because you don't have that in your past behavior and therefore it is not in your data. So in many of these cases where a company is never going to have enough data based on the inherent nature of the activity being measured and being predicted, third-party vendors are almost the only solution that they can go after. There are, however, many scenarios where companies, they are collecting data, but it is not necessarily relevant for the metric or the business that they are trying to optimize. Hmm. And this, I think, becomes a bit difficult because ideally data collection is something that you have designed when you have the end in mind. What has typically happened, though, is some data team from five or 10 years ago, when they were first installing version 1.0 of your data infrastructure, they created some kind of protocol or paradigm that they used. They may or may not have documented it very well. And so you're sitting with five to 10 years of data that may not may or may not be very well documented. And now you have, let's say, a new data science team or you hired a chief data, data officer who is trying to review all this data, make sense of it. And some of the assumptions could be missing. Some of the filters may be missing. And then it becomes quite dangerous then to leverage some of this older data that you don't fully understand and using that data to make predictions. Yeah, especially if the product changes and then all of a sudden you have to correct for that change and something that, you know, you know, we deal with this problem all the time. Like old data might be, you know, putting our models at a disadvantage instead of an advantage. It's a really tough problem. You know, I'm interested in the idea of selling machine learning solutions to companies. Uh, you're trying to convince someone to use a product that involves machine learning. And you run into you run into two problems, and this kind of relates to what you said before. One is that there are kind of overinflated expectations, like, oh, this is AI, this is the future, this is gonna solve all my problems. And the second problem is people are just kind of skeptical. Well, I don't know what this new thing is. I uh, This is not how I've we've done things in the past. Um, and so, uh, they're kind of dismissive. How do you deal with those two issues? So if you were selling a SaaS product to someone, you yeah. wouldn't list as one of the features, hey, this SaaS product uses the internet. Yeah. This is because it's self-evident that it would use the internet and it's not a remarkable aspect. Right. I think that AI and machine learning are going to become fairly universally applied to any data-driven project, project or product. 
Therefore, advertising that something uses machine learning or uses AI is going to become increasingly more meaningless, the same way as saying that a SaaS product uses the internet. Ultimately, what people care about is not necessarily how a technology is built. This obviously varies. So if you're selling to a CTO or a CIO, maybe he or she does care. Yeah. But if you're selling to a business leader, they don't need to know how this particular product is built. They need to know that it has exactly the functionality that is required to solve their particular business problems in the way that they prefer to solve them. So that's actually the most important thing is in many cases, you wouldn't want to mention AI or machine learning at all. It doesn't mean anything to a business leader who doesn't know what that means, who has all these misconceptions about AI. Yeah. It could be to oh, your we, point. We shouldn't yeah. use it as a buzzword that we expect people to be like, ah, I get the point. Ultimately, you, know, like, you should so always just play be, it cool. Like, hey, should, this is part of a standard thing that I do. It's machine learning. You should always submit. focus on the value add and the yeah. functionality, not the how. So you, you focus on the why not the how, which is, it doesn't matter how this particular product is built if it solves my problem well. Now, obviously, like I said, there are exceptions, right? Like people are going to care about how are you handling my data? Is it secure? Is it private? Um, Are you sharing this with anyone else? How are you doing aggregate machine learning modeling? Those are all questions that once you get past the initial persuasion stage and you're in the due diligence stage, you're going to have to answer. But initially when you're pitching, especially if you're pitching to a business leader, it really doesn't make sense to say that you use AI. It means almost nothing. And mm. they can't tell, oh, is it because, are you using some, are you just calling a library in scikit-learn? Or did you develop a custom proprietary deep learning model that outperforms every other solution on the planet? It's just yeah. really hard for them to assess that. So really it's just more about What are you trying to achieve? Why is it that you're able to achieve this in a way that's better than your competitors? If you're going, for example, for greater accuracy, or maybe it's the user experience that's better. In many cases, though, when you speak to business people and you ask them, how do you select a vendor? They'll say it's the service. They'll say, hey, a lot of technology companies are offering the exact same functionality, the exact same features. What we care about is, are they going to help us implement it? Are they going to help us apply it to the most pressing problems? And I think especially with AI vendors, sometimes AI works out of the box, depending on how well it's designed. And sometimes it actually requires a lot of work from your customer to adopt your technology in those cases. We've observed that companies that have a very strong service component tend to do very well. Companies that have this kind of intellectual AI product that is a platform where they don't give a lot of handholding, they don't give a lot of advisory, they tend to have a harder time attracting and keeping customers. So to summarize, maybe combine AI with uh, service, combine it with like product design. I would say, and um, you know, make sure you're you're solving the problem. And if you're solving a problem that's applicable to to AI, and you use uh, or you use like machine learning and you do research it, on it, you know, you should have a really good solution to that problem in the end. So if if you're applying it to the right problem, then then I think you'll do very well. Uh, but like you said, with all those caveats, something else I think to keep in mind if you are thinking about becoming a machine learning vendor, meaning you're trying to develop a, an AI startup that then sells an AI enabled product to another enterprise, a ton of other people can use the same algorithms as you. And even when someone yeah. says, I have a quote proprietary neural network, there's going to be barriers to how much better you're going to be able to perform, uh, right? Just to say, there, there are people who say, like, uh, Are you sure we should give out the algorithm? I'm like, 
I think uh, people will fig- know how to figure out uh, logistic regression uh, without me. I think it's okay. You know, <laughs> I think that but, algorithms are ultimately not very defensible, even yeah. if you do um, have some very clever PhDs. Ultimately, what I are think it's, it's the research and real world experience in applying the algorithm that's very tough to. It, it's a couple of things. One is the data. Yeah. Right. So data. Either you have some proprietary source of data, yeah. or you have fantastic business relationships. Yeah. Um, and through those business relationships, you get access to data that your competitors do not. Yeah. That is more a function of your sales, marketing, and business development skill than it is your machine learning modeling capabilities, yeah. which is the well, access to data. It's not, it's not like the, the the specific model itself. That's like it's usually. Okay, you, you apply the model and then it's like uh, X, Y, and Z went wrong. We have to go back and fix it. And then you, know, you do that again over months and months, sometimes years. And like, that's really, that's like experience that's really hard to, you know. You're right. I would absolutely not discount domain expertise. I think that if I were forced to choose, I would choose domain expertise over machine learning technical capabilities if I were to, if I were forced to pick between one of them. Uh, when put when trying to tackle a business problem, because if you are not really understanding where data com- comes from, what does it actually mean? If you don't have that deep expertise in terms of the business processes and the business goals, and also your users, then you can be a whiz at developing proprietary neural network algorithms that are just not going to work very well. And in our observation, we've seen a lot of machine learning projects at global companies now. A lot of cases, using the library from scikit-learn and solving a problem really quickly outperforms trying to build some kind of complex model that very, very few people understand that is difficult to maintain and that ultimately doesn't even perform that much better, if at all, compared to a very simple solution. So in most production enterprise settings, what we see work well are ensemble models that may use a lot of more naive models, but the combination of these models creates a performance system that scales and is robust. I mean, one thing that I, uh, you know, I like is, if I have a model that gets retrained in the latest data periodically, then it gets better and better. But if it's using something that's so complicated that it can't retrain, then it just it sits there and it's not using the latest data. After a year, it's like kind of looking sad. And it's you're so much better having the system, you know, learn over the t- over time from new data than you know trying to. Um, design something that's maybe a little bit more accurate out of the box, but then um, then loses maintainability. It's important to understand that from a business perspective, what is your benchmark? What is your goal? If you're doing literally no automation at all in a particular function, you're not doing any automation, any analytics in, a, in sales or marketing, then even if you were to do a type of modeling that was objectively less accurate than a more complex say neural network architecture approach that's still adding a lot of business value and getting that model built the system deployed and the roi generated for that business in a shorter amount of time will serve you much better than taking that same time trying to build something that is trying to hit accuracy levels that aren't even required for your particular use case so in the academic world people are always competing about making marginal improvements on some academic benchmark or some academic competition right. in the business world really if, if if for example one common problem is marketing will generate leads and then sales doesn't follow up on these leads 
Okay, <laughs> nothing is happening. It's literally manual. In those particular cases, if you were to just do a very simple automation, maybe it doesn't even use machine learning. Maybe it's just a scripted automation. That is already significantly better um, than what was being done before, which was nothing. So in a lot of businesses, sometimes even the most sophisticated businesses, there are definitely aspects of their business which are not being touched by data, not being touched by automation, for which there are very persistent problems that can be solved either with some rudimentary scripted automation or with what you would call commodity machine learning approaches that don't really require an advanced PhD in AI. I've definitely fallen into these traps from time to time, um, not just in machine learning, but in, in engineering where you build something and it's great and it um, automates something a lot and you're like, okay, I improve it and you improve it a little more. But then after a while, you realize that the improvements are getting uh, less and less um, valuable. And so you're spending all this time for you know pennies basically, and you realize, oh, I've got to step back and I've got to start working on something else. And I, I can't tell you how many you know weeks and months have been, and it's, it's not just an engineering problem, it's a product problem, it's a design problem that have been lost to just like, wait a minute, wait a minute, we needed to, st we needed to stop this a while ago. <laughs> we were working on the wrong thing. Yeah, it's a very common problem. I, I think sometimes it's, it's also rooted in the way that we train product managers, engineers, and designers. We often train them to be extremely detail-oriented, to aim for perfection in their systems. And that's fantastic yeah. when you want to build extremely robust and scalable technology. I think that from a business standpoint, um, you have to think a little bit more practically, right? So let me give you an example. If you have the ability to increase revenue or reduce cost, um, which one is better? Obviously, this depends on what your cost is and what your revenue is. But in a lot of businesses, people are far more willing to invest in things that generate more revenue than they are in reducing costs. Now, if you think about reducing costs, there's a finite amount of costs you can reduce. It is the total. You can only reduce the total amount of costs that you currently have. Right. So there's a cap. With revenue, you pretty much have uncapped upside, right. which is not to say that you should ignore your costs. I think cost is very important to consider. Um, but just in terms of understanding where business leaders are willing to invest, if, for example, you are uh, the CIO or an IT executive at a big financial firm and you say, hey, if we replaced this IT system, uh, it'll you know, reduce costs by 20 percent, they'll probably they'll probably look at you and say, well, that's great, but we don't care because we would rather, for example, improve our trading software or automated trading systems. And those are improving our revenue generation by 20 or more percent. So that's just something that often frustrates technologists who work at non-technology companies. So a company like Facebook, Google, Amazon, they're optimizing everything because they have this, it's in their blood to build excellent technology across all of their functions. But if you work at a non-technology company, technology has often been a department that's relegated to the back seat it is often seen as a cost center most of these companies don't produce technology products so often even some of these global fortune 500 companies don't have a cto because a cto builds external facing products a cio builds internal technology products so technology infrastructure that's being used by business units executives and your employees okay so let's get into uh particular industries now are there any Particular industries that, and aside from like the obvious, the, the tech industry, Facebook, Google, 
Amazon, whatever, but like learning particular industries maybe we wouldn't expect that have been implementing this very well. Um, and any that have been lagging behind when it comes to AI and machine learning? I don't think it's much of a surprise. Financial services often leads the pack. Mm. One, because they are flush with cash. They can afford to pay AI researchers the same prices in terms of salary and benefits and total comp as these leading companies like Amazon, Facebook, Google, and Microsoft. Yeah. Uh, but there is a difference. So for example, a lot of the, the financial services firms that are leading would be the smaller, more independent ones like hedge funds or investment management firms. Or companies like Capital One, which have spent many, many years transforming themselves into a proper technology company and so are ahead of other credit card companies. But if you look at some of these older banks, they are going to be handicapped by one very, very old infrastructure and also legal, regulatory, and other compliance issues that just slow down innovation. The common thought that banks have when it comes to IT is if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. So that does limit some of them from being able to adopt. Um, industries that are lagging behind are usually ones where they have fundamentally a data gap in their business process. So we talked about earlier that there are some challenges, like you're trying to do lead prediction based on your just your company's own sales data. You may not be generating enough data. There are other cases that are even worse where the business doesn't even have the data. So CPG and quick serve restaurants are two categories where there's often missing data. If you're a CPG company, what's, like a cons CPG? consumer packaged goods, right? So, okay. so kind of uh, perishable goods like baby powder, shampoo, soap, if you're a CPG company, or, or food and beverage is another one, um, if you're a CPG company, you almost never own the retail touch point. So you don't buy shampoo or aftershave from Unilever. You buy it from Walgreens. You buy it from your, your local grocery store. So these companies don't actually have a lot of end consumer data points. They don't have access to the, to the retail touch points. They don't sell their products online um, for the most part. Um, and what they do is they have a B2B distribution where they then sell to resellers. In that, and also in the case of CPG, the products have such low margin, you're not going to instrument them. So for example, you're not going to put a sensor on a bottle of shampoo to tell what shelf is it sitting on at the Walmart. And mm. when it's bought, how often is it being used until it's empty? And how long oh, does yeah. it take to empty it? <laughs> There's no way you can instrument a shampoo bottle like that because you would completely lose, lose money on that product. However, think about how much Facebook knows about literally every single thing you do on Facebook and with the Facebook pixel, everything you do on the rest of the internet. Yeah, <laughs> um, so. That difference in the deep data-driven understanding of how Facebook understands their users versus how, say, Unilever or another CPG understands their users is just absolutely vast. So quick serve restaurants, very similar. A lot of them are cash-based. So some of them don't even have their finances completely digitized or their inventory completely digitized. If you look at most restaurants, they're using fax machines <laughs> to yeah. process orders. And so looking at just overall a low digitization, very low margin business, it makes it hard for them to invest in the kind of technology that they would need to even digitize the data. And then finally, I mentioned food and beverage Food and beverage is similar to CPG. Most food and beverage companies are going to be selling to a reseller. You don't buy Budweiser directly from Anheuser-Busch. Right. So 
if they don't own the retail touch points, it's actually very difficult for, for them to understand how their product is performing in the market and what is affecting, what levers are affecting that ultimate consumer consumption, which is ultimately what is going to drive the health of their business. So companies where there are fundamental data gaps, they're going to struggle and it will be interesting in the next decade or so to see who actually does survive because there is a real risk. If you look at Amazon, Amazon has entered many product manufacturing lines now. They look specifically for supply chains to disrupt and they have all the data. If you are, for example, L'Oreal, beauty is a very, very high margin supply chain business and Amazon is interested in disrupting that. And the thing about Amazon is Amazon knows more about who searches for your product, who clicks on your product, who clicks on your product but doesn't buy, who's buying your competitors' products. They know far more about that than L'Oreal does. So we'll have to see moving forward how some of these companies are going to be able to survive when they are handicapped in this very fundamental way. Yeah, I, like you said, we have a really hard time figuring it out. If one of them finds some way around this, which is not easy, I can't figure, figure out a way around it, like you said, the shampoo problem off the top of my head. But if somehow someone figures it out, then, uh, then there'll be an advantage. But like you said, I think your timeline is right. It's not going to happen in five years. It would have to be down the line, decades. I do want to ask about customer service systems and as, as something that can be disrupted by AI. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so we talked earlier about how computer vision enabled many business applications that were completely impossible before. I would say that similar things have happened on the NLP side of things, NLP being natural language processing and, and text yeah. analysis. Because if you think about it, most enterprises, the data that they are most rich in is textual data, yeah. whether it is customers writing product reviews, whether it is uh, advertising copy, whether it is user-generated content on social media, the vast majority of the data that enterprises own or that are about a brand is going to be textual data. It far outweighs the amount of visual data that someone has. So we have, with deep learning and neural network architectures, been able to achieve much higher levels of accuracy for certain kinds of natural language processing tasks, such as semantic analysis. So it used to be, you mentioned um, in one of your talks that you're able to disambiguate between if someone says this place is the shit versus if this place is yep. shit. <laughs> the the, the uh, exact now, phrase I happened that to that was not always on. possible. So for example, if you had a, a, a line that was something like, my feelings about this movie are best described as lukewarm, Previous statistical sentiment analysis would probably rate it incorrectly as being positive because it would look at the word best, which is a highly weighted positive word, and assume that the whole sentence was a positive sentiment. As you and I know, it is not. It is a negative sentiment. Um, but now with these attentional neural networks, you're able to get much higher accuracy in terms of what people actually mean. There's a lot of breakthroughs with regard to machine comprehension, reading comprehension, and even stance detection. Like what position does this person favor about a particular topic or not, which is currently being used to try to fight fake news. So with greater textual understanding, that means you can understand what customers are saying and react better. So that's one stage, which is just analyzing your existing customer data. The second stage with customer experience automation is 
augmenting and or replacing human agents in support centers. So calling customer support is probably everyone's least favorite thing to do. Oh, yeah. Nobody enjoys doing it. Nobody, nobody loves it. So part of the reason why nobody loves it is because it is so inefficient. Why is it that you get transitioned to three different departments to solve a very basic problem? So the promise is that using things like conversational bots, conversational AI, um, human in the loop, customer support systems, you should be able to accelerate the resolution for the user, yet at the same time, reducing the cost for the business. So that is a promise. And there are cases where it works very, very well. Now, in the cases where it works very well, it typically is that the AI-enabled customer support system is tightly integrated with the business functions and technology. So for example, Autodesk was able to use IBM Watson to deflect something like 99% of their customer support. Um, so to go back, that's the system that, that won in Jeopardy. Now it's being put to work in yeah, the real well, world. Yeah, well, actually not. It's actually not. It's unfortunately not the same system. IBM yeah. Watson was actually the deep QA project, yeah. was a, which was a legitimate research project that was used to defeat the Jeopardy champions. Pretty much none of what's called and branded IBM Watson today uses any of that original technology. So, so sadly, the only thing that has remained is the marketing, but it actually uses completely different technology. So IBM Watson Conversation is its own product. IBM IBM Watson also acquired a bunch of companies like Alchemy yeah. and Tone Analyzer from other providers. So it actually is not the deep QA project that was the research project behind the Jeopardy win. So sadly, yes, sadly, it was great marketing for them. It, yeah, sadly, it's not. Um, and but um, Autodesk was able to use IBM Watson's conversation product. And I, I believe what they did was they were able to reduce the time to resolution by 99%. So wow. if it took same like two days to resolve something, they were able to resolve a lot of issues to under like a minute in many cases. And examples though, of common cases that they would address would be someone would say, Hey, I, you know, bought a, a license, but I lost my activation code. Can I have a new one? For a automated system to be able to answer that, it needs to be able to tap into the customer database and actually generate a new activation code and then send it to the customer. If either a human or a machine is not able to do, to do that, then you're not going to solve that use case in a very time uh, sensitive manner. So customer service automation that works almost always has to tie back into that business or technology function. So it has to hook into the enterprise's functional APIs. Chatbots that don't do that are almost universally awful. Hmm. Um, so, for example, I if mean, you... <laughs> one thing I noticed with Marsbot was like it was only as good as the um, you know as the backend calls that I could make. Like if I can, great. If I could understand that someone's looking for good pizza, then great. I could make a backend call and that that asks for good pizza. But if they ask for something that I can't do, then there's not much I could do other than say sorry, I don't know what to do. Yeah, it's unfortunate that that's the case, but. I think the challenge with customer service for enterprise is it does require a lot of coordination to integrate a front end, whether it's a bot only or a human in the loop customer service solution with some of these technology functions at the back end. Sometimes because of legacy, sometimes because of security, there's often very many barriers to entry. So many of the bots that you've encountered are probably not very good. That said, automating customer service is definitely going to happen. It is absolutely going to happen. And you're seeing 
automation of the customer experience throughout the funnel in the advertising, marketing, and sales stages, in the after purchase stages, in the customer engagement stages, in inside of existing products. It's definitely the future and we will increasingly improve the performance as we improve our capabilities in natural language processing, understanding and generation. Uh, so the book is called Applied Artificial Intelligence. Tell us a little bit more. I know we covered it at the beginning. Tell us a little bit more about what, uh, what you're going to get out of the book. So the book title is called Applied Artificial Intelligence, a handbook for business leaders. It is designed for business leaders who are tech savvy and data savvy, but who don't necessarily have degrees, academic experience or professional experience working mathematically or technically with machine learning, data science or AI technologies. It is designed to be very accessible. We try our best to give you concrete, practical information without using too much jargon, too much fluff. Um, so it's designed really to be that first guide that you pick up when you want to develop a broad understanding of how is AI being used in business? What is AI? <laughs> and how to build an organization around AI. So this last point is quite important because people will often say, well, oh, just use this machine learning technique, but they don't tell you how you ex actually execute it in your organization. But in our book, we also talk about recruiting strategies. We talk about how you get buy-in from your stakeholders. We, we talk about how do you pick true North metrics that actually mean something valuable. We talk about how do you evaluate the performance of machine learning systems. We also talk about some of the challenges about actually pro productionizing and operationalizing machine learning. So those are all very practical. And in some ways you can say they're unsexy, but it's that unsexy stuff you got to do to actually get things to work. Yeah, I, th I will. And the book comes out shortly, right? In a few weeks? Yeah, we actually, um, we should be launching it hopefully in late May, early June. Okay, cool. So I will, I'll get a copy when it comes out and I'll read it and, uh, and we'll have you back on. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, so I know, I know all the things you talked about, you've written a lot about. So I'm going to collect a lot of links from you to put in my show notes page. But um, maybe you could just say right now some places people can go to read more about. Absolutely. What you're so about. if you'd like to download a preview copy of our book, it is at appliedaibook.com. So pretty easy to remember. We also are going to be putting a lot of supplemental material that augments our book because, as you know, the AI industry moves very fast, and so it's very difficult to cover everything in a single book. We also run a publication called TopBots. It's at topbots.com. It is the leading publication and community for business leaders who are applying AI. And so we cover on topbots.com all kinds of topics such as tutorials for machine learning to machine learning applied to marketing, sales, recruiting, operations. There. There's a lot of stuff. And so if you go on TopBots and you search, prob probably we will have written something that is relevant for you. Well, that's great. I think that um, my listeners are going to get a lot out of it. And I'm um, looking forward to your book launch. So thanks a lot, Maria, for coming on the show. Yeah. And one more thing I forgot to okay. mention earlier is we think it's really important for business leaders to learn from each other, not just read our book and learn from us. So we also have been creating social communities and discussion forums. And so we have one on Facebook that 
a lot of business leaders have joined and are regularly posting their questions and answering each other's. Is this the one? Is this? Yeah, this it is. Um, th- it's called Applied Artificial Intelligence and Machine Learning for oh, Business. I'm in it. I'm in it. Absolutely. You are in it, Max. Max is a contributor. Um, so if you go to AppliedAIBook.com slash community, you will see the links to all of our social groups that you can join and engage with other readers of our book, other business leaders who are applying AI. All right. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. All right. Thank you, Max. Okay. Once again, the book is called Applied Artificial Intelligence. You can go to AppliedAIbook.com and you can get it pre-ordered also on Amazon. Looks like it'll be available in a few weeks. I know I'll be picking it up. And when I do, we'll talk about it further. Also, you can check out uh, the show notes page on my blog currently, maxsklar.com slash blog. Yes, looking to move that, but for now it's over there. And you can see all the links for everything that Maria produces from top bots and some links to articles that are related to some of the questions we answered today. So a lot of content coming your way on this show. And um, see you next week. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. This show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you want to keep up, remember to follow The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at MaxClock. Have a great week. Feel the power. One more thing, if you've made it this far, sometimes I put a little bit of content after the outro for people who uh, stick around and, and, and listen for a long time. Um, I'm really excited because uh, today, Tuesday, uh, May, what is it, May 8th, um, I'm actually uh, officially launching one of these AI machine learning products uh, of kind of of the type that I, I was speaking about here with uh, with Maria. And I'm not quite ready to talk about it all yet, but uh, I will very shortly. And I am, uh, I am looking forward to that, taking all of these ideas and seeing how we put it into practice. All right. Have a good one.